name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. The text for the sermon this evening for the ascension of our Lord comes from our first reading from Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, Jesus was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And from the Gospel from Luke 24, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. So tonight we celebrate the ascension of our Lord. The day of ascension isn't the most highly celebrated church day on the calendar, to be sure. It's not a holiday that the secular world has adopted as its own either, like many of the church's main festivals. We notice there are no special ascension vacations from work, and there aren't a bunch of ascension decorations in our homes. We rightly make a big deal out of Jesus' coming to earth at Christmas time, and even the world recognizes that in its own way. But his departure at the ascension gets ignored by comparison. Without a doubt, the ascension of Jesus is often viewed as one of those odd things that Jesus did that we don't really understand. We usually just swallow it and move along to the next thing in the Bible. But the ascension, like everything of Jesus, is ultimately for us for our benefit that is it's not just that jesus ascended the bible isn't just recording this point for us but his ascension has particular value for us and for our salvation at his incarnation and birth as he came into the flesh we can clearly see the value for our salvation he needed to become man so that he could be our full substitute. He wanted to become like us in every way so that he could die for us in the flesh. And just as a side note here, uh, I guess I'll start with a, a little background story. When you first go to seminary, and maybe Matt had this experience as well, when you first go to seminary and you have a variety of different practices, everyone's bringing their, their worship practices from their own church homes perhaps, but the seminary has its own culture that you inherit because you're coming in as a first year and there's guys all the way up to fourth year and, and beyond that. And so you're in, you're in uh, the chapel for the first time during divine service or even in the regular chapel services and you get to the creed and whenever in the creed you confess the incarnation was incarnate by the Holy Spirit, the Virgin Mary, all of a sudden you look up and you realize everyone else is bowing down. It's really weird. Everyone's bowing. And you're like, well, I guess I should. And just as you kind of figure out that you're, you're supposed to be bowing, everyone else kind of stands up again. You're like, oh, I guess I'm standing. And then you kind of start asking around, why? Ultimately, as we know, it's totally in the realm of Christian freedom. It doesn't matter. 
right? Just like many of the rites and ceremonies that we practice as a church, the, the purpose of these things is ultimately to teach, to teach the young, to teach others, even to teach seminarians so that we would ask. So kids ask, why, why, are, they, why are they bowing? Why are they bending? It's called genuflecting or bowing in some way. Ultimately, uh, the posture is just that the seminary's practice and, and some pastors, like when Pastor Schumacher and I happen to remember to do it, when we're not thinking about other things we're supposed to be doing, will bow at the incarnation, symbolizing Christ becoming man. Remember, he is eternal, he always was, but he was not always man. So coming into the flesh and becoming man at the incarnation, so we bow at the incarnation, and then when he ascends into heaven, we'll stand symbolizing his ascent into heaven. So he kind of tracing his descent of Christ onto earth and then his ultimately ascension back into heaven. Uh, so if you're ever wondering, it's not just that Pastor Schumacher and I simultaneously have back pain, uh, but we're ultimately trying to, at the very minimum, teach. I'm still waiting for some kid to come up and ask me, Pastor, why are you bending over funny in the middle of the crew? Maybe I should bend further, but we'll, we'll get to that. So why does the ascension matter other than just giving us an excuse for a pasta dinner? Why does the ascension matter, especially since at his ascension, Jesus seemed to be leaving us alone? The apostles stood there staring up into heaven as Jesus floated out of sight and into the clouds. Now, we might have felt similar to them in our experiences before, such as after family has come into town for a visit, then they finally pile into their car to leave. As they pull away, we stand there waving goodbye as the car rolls out of sight. All the excitement and stress of the visit comes to an end and life returns to normal. They drive away and we are left alone, straightening up the house and getting back into our routine. Our time together is done and we are alone. If we see the ascension of Jesus in that way, as Jesus is some kind of departed visitor who was here for a short time and now gone away, then we will often find ourselves alone in this world as we face a whole variety of, of experiences, both good and certainly bad. That is, if Jesus came into the flesh, died and rose, and then just floated up, floated away, leaving us alone until we die, what is the hope or comfort for us now as we remain not in the clouds, but down here still on earth? What's the comfort and hope for us here? Seeing Jesus as a departed visitor leaves us alone and afraid, frustrated that he abandoned us and that he left us to wade through this worldly mess alone. We're left wondering, where did he go? What's he doing? And why didn't he stick around and help us get through life in this fallen world, full of its shootings, diseases, sin, and shame? But Jesus never gave himself to us in that way, as some sort of departed visitor, here one day, gone the next. He didn't ascend into heaven to stop being with us. And that's key. He didn't ascend into heaven to stop being with us. 
Rather, he ascended into heaven so that he can be with us even more, even more personally than before, and that he would be with us always. Now, how can this be? If he ascended to somewhere else, how could that make him even closer to us than ever? Well, as we confess it in the Creed, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father. So where is that? Where is the right hand of God? It's not like Peter Pan's past the second star, second something on the left, however that goes. Somewhere out in space. Where is the right hand of God? To put it simply, just as your right hand is wherever you are, God's right hand is wherever he is. And since we know that God is omnipresent, that is, in all places at all times, we know that the right hand of God is not far away. But it is, in fact, everywhere, especially where he has placed his name for us in mercy. So for Jesus to be at the right hand of God is not so much about where he is. It's a very helpful distinction. It's not necessarily a place on a map. It's not about where he is, but to be at the right hand of God is about what he is doing. He's not sitting there on his phone, scrolling through prayers and arbitrarily deciding who to like or respond to. Instead, he's constantly interceding for you, praying for you and your family to God the Father. He is praying for us that we would be kept in the Father's name. And in hearing his word with our ears of faith, that we would be made one with him. He's praying endlessly, Father, these are not guilty. These, my beloved, are not guilty for the sins that Satan accuses them of. I have died for those sins. They are paid for by me. These are my beloved. They are in me and they are pure and holy. All of my good works are theirs. All of their shame has been covered by my blood. They are your children just as much as I am, says Jesus. He prays, too, that we would be one with each other, forgiving one another, building one another up in his gospel, comforting and encouraging one another, rejoicing in his gift of oneness. He is interceding for his church, for us, for all of our brothers and sisters in the faith throughout the world, especially those being persecuted. And he is praying for the world. It is he intercedes for those, even and especially those who now reject him, those who bow down to other gods, those entangled in the ideologies of this world, those locked in retribution and anger toward others. He prays for this world that all would know him, the one who has paid for their sins and hears their prayers, that they would know him as Savior. 
After his ascension, Jesus places himself in heaven for us. But heaven isn't some distant place, light years away beyond our universe, and it's not an imaginary place up in the clouds somewhere. Instead, heaven, the right hand of God, is wherever Jesus is. At his ascension, heaven doesn't float out of reach and out of sight. Instead, heaven is located where Jesus continues to be for us. So where is Jesus? He ascended, but he didn't leave. He's right where he has promised to be. He ascended, and now he continues to bring heaven to you. He's not floating around in the clouds or out in space, but he's present for you in his gifts. He's placed his presence for you in holy baptism, as he said, where St. Matthew records the ascension, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's with us always through holy baptism, calling us his own and giving us his name. He's with us in his supper, just as he said, this is my body, this is my blood given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is here, bringing heaven to us in his supper and uniting us with all the company of heaven, as we sing it in the Sanctus with, with heaven, How's it go? Angels, archangels, and all the company of heaven. That's what I get for going off script. He's here in his word of absolution as he has his forgiveness spoken into our ears. The one who hears you hears me, he says, to the apostles and to his pastors. So Jesus is there as his forgiveness is spoken into our ears through his sent ones, and he is there for you as you speak that same word of forgiveness to each other. He's not gone, and he's not floating around in some random cloud. He's in his gifts, right where he said he would always be for you. Today, Jesus gives us to our neighbors to serve them and love them. Having been given the eternal comfort of Jesus, being with us always, today he gives us to each other to serve and love whoever he puts before us. We're never alone, staring into the clouds hopelessly for a distant Jesus, but we stand with each other as gifts to one another, always knowing right where Jesus is for us. In the name of Jesus, amen. We stand for prayer.